Peak Performance Plus presents the Summit Club Podcast, your business roundtable discussion for sales and business leaders with your host, Bill Stats. Welcome to the SummitClubPodcast.com, a business roundtable. I'm your host, Bill Stats, with fellow Summit Club contributor and golf partner, John Thane. Hi, JT. Hey, good morning, Bill. Glad to be part of this podcast today. Well, we've been waiting for this podcast. It's all about golf. And if any two people need to know more about golf, it's you and I. No doubt. (laughs) Today, we're fortunate to have with us a good friend and a loyal Summit Club member, John Capers. Here's a little bit about John before we get started. John Capers, the Marion Golf Club's historian, archivist, a member since birth, grew up in a competitive family headed by his mom an 11-time Marion Golf Club champion at 21, a plus two and captain of a Division I golf team. He finally beat her, although she played from the men's tees. He graduated from the University of the South. He then qualified for the 1966 U.S. Amateur at Marion and the 1968 U.S. Amateur at, is it Kyoto, John? Uh, 18 Marion Club Championships later, his passion turned to the preservation of the club's history and sharing it with members, guests, and visitors, just like us. As an introduction to today's podcast, I've been talking with John for years about doing something about the business of golf. And as a result of the pandemic-induced renewed interest in golf, it seemed like the perfect time. More casual players than ever are out on the links to have fun build or renew friendship and just have an enjoyable time. So today, JT and I are looking forward to a valuable and hopefully educational conversation with John on how to get the most out of your golfing experience. If you're ready, John, then let's just get started with a couple numbers and we'll get started talking about golf. In 2020, the total number of players was 24.8 million golfers in the United States. 3 million of which for the first time. So, John, what do you think caused the increase and the popularity around the pandemic? Well, first off, it's the most socially distant sport you could have other than maybe skiing. And we're not interested in that. So let's talk about golf. Four guys out there or a gal or a mixture carrying their own bag. And that's what's really happened. People have learned how with pandemic, they can work in the morning, play golf during the midday, go back to work in the afternoon or in the evening. And it's very, very easy. It's quick. And it gives an athletic endeavor that that generation is really looking for. And you're right about the walking thing. You know, almost anybody would, would endorse and advocate people do more walking. And golf is a perfect opportunity to do that. It should be about a six-mile walk. But depending on where you hit it, it could be a heck of a lot longer. <laughs> a lot longer than that for me. <laughs> well, and you know what's funny? There seems to be, at least from my view, a lot more nine-hole play which takes less time, not just because it's a shorter amount of time, but because there's an awful lot of stuff that's going on now with kids being home out of school last year and all kinds of other demands. Nine holes seemed like, number one, up to your number, maybe a two and a half or three mile walk and good exercise and opportunity to, do, I don't want to say fraternize, but reconnect with friends and business associates and whatever. Several years ago, the USGA started a program called Play Nine, and it had a large impact. And they also set up a structure where you could have your own handicap built on a nine-hole round. So you don't have to play 18 holes 
to have a handicap, to be competitive, to play in different organizations and different types of clinics if you want. Nine's a good number, and nine is a short number. Then you get home and see the kids play softball or baseball or hockey. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. Years ago, and JT and I have talked about this from a perspective of sales and sales education, using golf as an opportunity to connect with either clients, prospects, or just referral sources, whatever. And many times I've played in invitationals and charity tournaments and stuff. And yet I will have clients remark to me that I can't do that. I don't know how to play and whatever. And I try to say to them, it just, it really doesn't matter. As long as you don't hold anybody up, you know, who cares? And where else are you going to spend in those situations, four or five hours with people that there's some meaningful opportunity to have a conversation. So for people that can't play or don't play well, what happened last year? Did they just all of a sudden not care or did something more higher priority happen that they went out anyway? I think they really got together individually and realized what the sport of golf could bring to them. Walking around, being out in the O, paying a green fee if, they, if they're going to a public course for it, which nine holes is less than 18 holes. And financially, it's a, it's a good thing to do. And to your point also about the people that are scared to play in outings or business business golf, whatever the case may be, it's real simple. If you're not playing well, pick it up. The other guy doesn't care whether you finish the hole out or not. And secondly, just make Doug on sure you stay behind him because he may be worse than you and you could get hit. <laughs> you know, that's that's a key point. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a high handicapper and it's embarrassing for as many years as I've been playing. And I still get intimidated from time to time when I go out with Good golfer. You, John Capers, I'd be terrified on the first tee. What does a golfer do to get over those jitters? And what, what should you do to prepare yourself to be functional? First off, you have to realize you're going to be scared. Secondly, you're probably going to hit a couple of horrible shots on the first hole. And third, you just hope the guy you're playing with isn't a jerk and comes over to you and say, as I do, hey, we're out here to have fun. We're going to spend a couple hours together. One of my mantras was, I am, and I don't say it, but I'm never going to talk business on the golf course. The other person brings it up, that's fine. But as Bill said, where are you going to get four or five hours of a person's time and learn about them as individuals? You, you should know enough about them as a business. They can bring that up over a drink afterwards, but not on the golf course. As you said, he's, he's intimidated enough. Let's not make it worse. You know, it's funny. The first time I played with John, I think, was at Hidden Creek with at the time, John's boss's boss, boss's boss, or whatever, yeah. Alan, the late Alan Glass. And Hidden Creek is not an easy track, as John will attest. But we still had we still had a lot of fun. That's a um, course. Who designed that course? You would ask me that. Uh, well, Cor Cor Crenshaw. Yeah, Crenshaw Cor. And just as. And that was like a business golf because I think we had a, a private equity guy playing with us. We had a great time. And it, after the first hole or two, it just really doesn't matter. Even playing with the famous John Capers, we had a good time. So you just have to kind of, I think, like anything else, the more you do it, JT, the less the jitters bother you. And I've told the story about the Bridgestone sales meeting when I was working with them regularly and we were at Kiowa and I wind up seeing Davis Love's caddy on on the tee box. It's like 
this is nice. We're going to get our picture taken. No, you're not. You're going to play. It's like, oh, man, how much worse can this get? So. But also, you know, from the other side, JT, uh, as I take it, I try to make the player, all the players in the group, as, you know, as easy as possible, as comfortable as possible. You know, I'll look at them sometimes, depending on the level, and say, hey, I don't care where you hit it, because you're never going to hit it someplace on this course that I haven't been. So number one, just from what we've talked about right now is, you know, the, the idea that you can't play well shouldn't really, or can't play, shouldn't hold you back. As long as you remember, don't hold other people up. As long as you keep moving and keep a smile on your face, nobody's really, really going to care. Yeah. No, number two, if you're playing with really good golfer or golfers, you know, just get over it. They don't care either. Just don't hold them up. And maybe you'll learn something because they, they play uh, a better game than you do. And I think also remember all the benefits of why you're there, whether there are business benefits or health and wellness benefits or just new contacts and people to socialize with. Now, if we step off that area and we talk about, well, how about if you want to get better? <laughs> how, what's the best way to do that? JT, you may want to talk about some of your own personal experiences in trying to get better and have John kind of give us his suggestions because obviously he's already gotten there and maybe you can look back and say, this is what, you know, I would suggest for people that want to improve their performance in golf. For Just speaking for myself, I have not taken a lot of lessons and generally every time I take a lesson, it tends to set me back rather than drive me forward. But, you know, I, I study the game, I read about the game, I look at other people's form and since we started these discussions with John Capers, I, I really decided that I do at this point really need to start taking it. and actually was going to take a lesson prior to this podcast, but thought, you know what, I might get more out of it if I wait until we do this podcast and get some thoughts from John Capers, who's a terrific player and knows a lot about best ways to practice and best ways to learn. So tell me something, John. <laughs> Anything, please. <laughs> I, I take lessons. Let's leave it right there. The beginning of the year is a reminder lesson. It's a warm-up. Put me back in the right, right style of things. There was a guy by the name of Percy Boomer who was a British uh, teacher back in the 20s, and he said something that made more sense to me than anything ever. The golf swing takes two-tenths of a second. The mind can handle one-tenth of a second at a time. So if it's two-tenths of a second to swing, how many things could you think about in completing a swing? Well, by the time you get to the third thought, you've already made a bad swing. So think about <laughs> it that way. And secondly, when you take a lesson, why are you taking it? Go there prepared to tell him where you're hitting it. Left, right, short, long, hosel rockets, whatever it is. But for heaven's sakes, don't walk on the lesson tee right out of your automobile because half the lesson you're going to be warming up. So you've got to go and hit some balls. If you're going to spend that much, much money on a lesson, and a lot of times the balls are waiting for you where the lesson's being given. Or if you have to pay a couple of bucks extra to get another bucket of balls, it's the only thing to do. You can't go out there cold and you need to hit balls first. No question about that. Well, how about, go ahead. I was just going to say, before we get into the rest part of it, if you take a lesson and you spend all that money and you don't do anything about it, it's a waste of time and effort and money. You've got to hit balls. I'm going to say a minimum of three hours in the next week just to try and work on what you were taught. Otherwise, 
write him a check and tear it up because it's not going to do you any good at all to take a lesson unless you do something with it. Well, is a playing lesson a better opportunity than a lesson on the range? Or is it just part of the whole protocol where you would start on the range and then maybe at some point get on the course with an instructor? Go to the range first. Because a playing lesson really is a course management lesson. Telling somebody to stand in the fairway and say, well, where's the bunker? Well, the bunker's on the left side. So I'm going to hit it up the right side if I don't hit the green. I mean, that's what a playing lesson starts to teach you, where to hit it, where not to hit it. And maybe you ought to hit a different, a little bit longer club. Remember, everybody, the biggest mistake amateurs make is they underclub. I was going to say that. Go out and take a lesson on the course, but after you know how to swing a golf club. And stick with one. If you, if you want to try a couple of different pros, move around. But find someone you're comfortable with and you're confident at and use that person as your teacher. Why is it that we tend to default to... I can hit it further than I really can, to your point. You take an extra club, please. Because golfers are optimistic. And they, and what they do is they always empirically remember the greatest shot they ever hit with every club in the bag. But think about it. What is it? It's the greatest shot you ever hit. It's not the average shot. Think about the average <laughs> miss. That's the club you should be using. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's funny, too. When you play, like we were talking about, intimidation when you're playing with a really good player or you have a really good caddy they can teach you a lot about your game that you're just not seeing because you're an optimist and they will be able to say well okay what can you hit a hundred and whatever yards get that club and i want you to get the ball over there and they'll help you manage reality rather than i'm going to go for it and it's like to your point john You've got like a one in 50 shot of actually hitting the best shot you ever hit. Forget it. You know, what's a typical shot going to look like? I will guarantee you that every golfer with a handicap of 10 or more does not know how far they hit any club in their bag. I'll wager that against anybody, anywhere, anytime, unless there's someone who goes to the range, takes a range finder, figures out how far some of the flags are on the range or the aiming points, and then starts hitting clubs to find out how, which club gets him there. And to your point, Bill, most of the time, hey, I hit a seven iron 165 yards. You've only done that once in your life. <laughs> You're and that was living tail wind. <laughs> and so they think they're going to hit the seven every time, whereas the seven goes 140 yards. But they don't know that unless they go to the range with a range finder. Borrow it from the guy next to you if you don't have one. John, here's a question. I'm about to, to, to start lessons with a, a pro at our club. And, you know, it, there's there's always the question, what's what's the optimum clubs you should be practicing with? Uh, I see guys out there with the driver, and I even think, that can't be right. You're hitting that club 12 times, 14 times in a round. Why am I hitting that club? What, what should I be doing here? Yeah, it's interesting. That leads into something that I've always said to people. There are 14 clubs in the bag. All right, let's take the driver and the putter out for this discussion. What happens if you go to a restaurant and it's got 12 feature items on the menu? you got a, a tough time making a decision as to what you want to do. Well, narrow it down. Let's say you've got that 150-yard shot. Is it a 5, 6, 7? What is it? You don't know. And until you know that, you can't play. But until you know which clubs you hit well, you're not going to be confident. 
There is no reason for anybody over a 10 handicap, in my estimation, who wants to get better to go out on the first tee after they practice with more than seven clubs in the bag. One of them is a putter. One of them is probably a sandwich. And after that, pick five more. And it certainly shouldn't be a driver. It'd be a three wood or maybe even like a 17 degree rescue. And then figure out three other clubs. If you want to hit it a little bit shorter, just choke down on it. But it makes decision better. It makes the game go faster. And that's what we're talking about. You build confidence. 14 clubs is a manufacturer's number, not an optimum number for playing well. Interesting. Back in the day, how many clubs did these folks really play with? I mean, four? (laughs) No, the reverse, Bill. Prior to 1934, the USGA did not have a legislation on 14 clubs. Johnny Goodman oh. won the U.S. Amateur with 28 clubs in his bag. I'd like to see that caddy. <laughs> yeah. It's like Phil Mickelson, where he was carrying, I don't know, three drivers or whatever. Absolutely. And, and by the way, let's talk about speed of play for a second. Last year, the U.S. Open 18-hole final took just under five hours. In 1950, Ben Hogan played 36 holes in the last day of the Open, which he won at Marion. 36 holes, lunch, and change clothes in less than seven hours and 45 minutes. Wow. And that was the speed of play. Golf has gotten so complicated with people. You go on the golf course. You have to drive a cart. Sometimes you're not allowed to take it into the fairway. You go pick up a club. You go over there. You look at it. You come back. You get another club. You come back. When you get out of that cart, you ought to have two clubs in your hand every time. Speed of play. And then you learn which which of the seven clubs in your bag. And yeah, eventually, you may get up a little higher. But I guarantee you, if you go out there... What do they sell starter sets with? Five, seven, and nine iron. That's what's in a lot of kids' starter sets. Why do they do that? Because they can't hit the others, and they don't need them anyway. So uh, let me ask you this, though. Relative to the speed of play, you're going to play faster with your single-digit guys, aren't you, than JT and I will play as being plus tens? Not necessarily. I played with a a 20-something a couple of days ago like a three a plus three handicap i finally went over and said if you don't speed up i'm gonna kick you in the butt he read every he was reading five iron shots from two different angles for crying out loud i said are your eyes that bad yeah sometimes they're the fast players out there and sometimes they're the penultimate slow player the player they're talking about the business golfer the person who wants to go out and impress the person they're with that they're a good person they know the speed of play is important that they're concerned about the people in front of them they don't want to hit into them concerned about the people behind them they don't want to have them hit into you speed of play Pick up a couple of clubs and go make the decision. John, can we go back to practice? Yes, sure. Practice. Let's say, you know, I choose a couple of clubs. You know, I choose a seven iron, a pitching wedge, a nine iron. How do I maximize the value of the practice that I get? Are there any techniques or should I be monitoring certain things? Should I be possibly charting shots? What should I be doing to determine how well I'm practicing? Every time I play a round of golf and I'm done, I will review that round and I will know a couple of things. How many fairways did I hit? How many greens did I hit? On the fairways, did I miss them left? Did I miss them right? On the green, did I miss it left? Did I miss it right? Was I long or was I short? And then you get into the other thing. Number one, if I was chipping and there was no sand or bunker between me and the cup, what's my par? Did I get up and down in two? And when I was in a bunker, what's my level of bunker play? Did I get up and down in three? So I think when you go to practice, you got to recognize the fact that well over 50% of your shots 
are going to be inside of 100 yards and probably inside of 50. So your point of taking a 7-iron, a 9-iron, and a pitching wedge, that should be where at least 50% of all your practice is. And by the way, a 9-iron and a pitching wedge are only 4 degrees apart, so you should don't need both of them, one or the other. You know, it's really funny when I think both you guys know that in past years I've played in the Silver Putter at Sunnybrook, and you'll see the guys in the flights that are doing the best have really incredible short games. I mean, it's almost like age doesn't matter quite as much because maybe they'll only hit tee shot 160 yards or something. But boy, I tell you, when they get within 100 yards of the green, look out, pal, because they have an incredible short game and they putt well. And, you know, I had it last Thursday, I had someone ask me about, well, I've got a putter that's I don't know how many years old, and I try to figure out what I should be using, and I try other things, and I said, well, for me, <laughs> you try other things, what, you putt six balls, and you go, I don't know if I like that. Well, you've been playing with a putter for 10 years, or five years, and this one feels uncomfortable. That's what comfort zone looks like. For me, I, I would find somebody that you play with that you like their putter and say, do you mind if I use your putter for this round and just see how I, you know, because you're not going to figure it out right away, are you? Not a chance. And as Bill knows, I worked with Bill Mickelson at, at different occasions prior to the Open. And he is the biggest disaster in amateur golf because of only one thing. He's the greatest short game player out there probably right now. Everybody talks about Bill Mickelson's flop shot. Everybody wants a 60-degree wedge, but nobody that I know of practices eight hours a day hitting flop shot. He does, and that's why he's the best in the world at it. And it's also why it's not a flop shot for the average amateur. It's a flub shot. Yeah. They, don't, they hit it fat. They hit it skinny. They hit it all different ways. And if you are 20 yards off the green and there's nothing between you and the pin, you're an 18 handicapper, what you should be hitting is maybe a pitch and run with a five, six, or seven iron. You can't hit a wedge. It's the heaviest club in the bag. It's the toughest club to hit a not full distance. Why do you think those guys lay back 80 yards when they're going to hit a wedge into a green? Because they've practiced, practiced, and practiced a full wedge shot. And to your point, JT, that's what you need to do. And if your range doesn't have a practice area, it's, yeah, it does. You just take a bucket of balls and hit them 25 yards. You figure, God, did I waste a lot of money? I didn't get the full length out of it. Well, I'll tell you what, you'll make that money up in front nine, back nine, and 18-hole bet. Just practice a short game. You know, it's funny when you say that, John, you and I, no matter what your skill level, you were commenting on, I think it was the Women's Open and Lexi Thompson, wasn't it, where she yep. flubbed a couple of different shots where it's like, wait, are you kidding me? Because it was the wrong shot. Why is she trying to flop a wedge up there when she should be rolling the ball up Hitting there? With pitch. Yeah. One of the biggest mental hazards that everyone has is the scorecard. The scorecard says par is 72, and you've got four threes and four fives and 10 par fours. But 72 is not your personal par. And I've seen this work with a lot of golfers. You say to yourself, wait a minute, I average 88 on a par 70 golf course. Well, then your par is one over par on every single hole. And if you do better than that, hey, I made four. I got a birdie. Next to you goes, what, is this guy on crack or something? What's wrong with him? <laughs> no, you made your own birdie and you're happy. You're not making a bogey and you're ticked off. And to that point also, maybe your average on every green is 
2.4 putt. That means you three putt a couple of times around. So expect it. Don't worry about it unless you three putt the first five holes. Then you got a problem. But I mean, you know, when you're pitching to a hole, every time you get around that green, whether you're in a bunker or chipping, and you say to yourself, I'm going to get up and down in three. And eventually, you know what's going to happen? You're going to get up and down in two. And you can't hit the greatest bunker shot in the world every time because you're not capable. Ask yourself when you're finished around, how many times didn't I get out of the bunk or did I hit it over the green or what did I do with it? So then I had to chip in and I'm down in four. No, your bunker average is three. Get the heck out of the bunker anywhere on the green, anywhere and two putt. Now that's your par and you'll get better at it as time goes on. But if you try and make par on the scorecard, bro, miss the sales pitch. Do we have enough that we could do a follow-up podcast. It seems like there's still plenty more that we could be talking about golf and golf for, for folks that are just beginners or just going back to golf and how to help them either improve their game or get more enjoyment out of golf. What do you think, guys? Is this something we should come back again with the subsequent podcast? I, I think there's plenty of content that you can do, Bill. And if there's any way that your people can give you questions, we would be sure I'm glad to answer them as best we can, either over the air or you know through you and email. Absolutely. That's great because in kind of closing us out today, other than thanking you for all the valuable suggestions and for JT and I just thinking about, man, I, I hope I go back through this thing and make some notes. If people that are listening have suggestions for future podcasts, whether it's golf or other issues, but in particular right now, golf for myself, for JT, for John, or for the podcast Business Roundtable, go to summitclubpodcast.com. And at the top of the landing page in the center, all you have to do is click on talk at summitclubpodcast.com and let us know what you're thinking. What do you want to hear more of about golf? What do you want to hear less of? And also in the guest tabs, you're going to find John's bio and contact info if you want to reach out to him next time. Any other closing thoughts from you, JT, or you, John Capers? Play fast and enjoy the game. I, I echo that, and I look forward to a follow-up. I'm going to take a lot of the tips that you gave us today, John, which are extremely valuable. I'm going to take that lesson that I've been waiting to do, and hopefully I'll be telling you success stories about how many strokes I shaved off. Thank you very much, John Capers. Till next time, this is Bill Stats, John Thane, and John Capers saying, when it comes to golf, keep climbing. We're here so you don't have to do it alone, and we'll see you at the summit. To learn more about the Summit Club podcast, please find us online at www.summitclubpodcast.com. Thanks for listening to the Summit Club podcast, and we'll see you at the top.